1: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, December 17th, 2012. feeling that the world has gone crazy. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically. Help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. These are treacherous times. These are very deceptive times. Um, something I want you to consider for a second here. Are you ready? What is the enemy of truth? You going, um, lies? Right. <laughs> this is not hard. This is not hard. The enemy of truth well that's the untruth or lies okay um truth has no beef with truth truth doesn't fight truth because truth and truth are on the same side you get what i'm saying so the idea is this scripture says that no lie is of the truth no lie is of the truth and we've got a problem and that is is that within the visible church you know within churches that call themselves christian that claim to be, uh, well, um, in accord with what Christ has taught, what the apostles have taught, what Christian orthodoxy has been. Within churches uh, that claim allegiance to the historic Christian faith, there are those that are teaching lies. And lies are not in accord with the truth. In fact, lies are the enemy of the truth. Truth matters, okay? What God says matters. And when you read Scripture, okay, um, if you're anything like me, because, well, I hate hate to break this to you. I know this is no surprise to you all. Are you ready? See, I'm, I'm a sinner. You see, the reason I sin is because I'm a sinner and same, same with you. The reason you sin is because you're a sinner and being born you know, a sinner, one who is dead in trespasses and sins, and who, someone who has a sinful nature that I will have to contend with until the day that I die, or Christ returns. Um, I'm, you know, me and my sinful flesh are constantly at war with each other, but because I'm a sinner, I'm capable of doing some pretty stupid things, of sinning grievously, of really holding really, well, false concepts and ideas. That's kind of part and parcel of the, our sinful problem, and so the idea is, is that when you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments doesn't just deal with commands as to how we pertain or relate to each other. Instead, there are there's a whole first table, and the first table of God's law deals with our relationship to God and things that God expects us to do in you know in that. Okay, so the idea, not having any other gods, um, keeping the Sabbath day hold you know things like that you know these are these that's the first table and so th- that being the case is that those those laws identify sin for us when we hold doctrines that are contrary to scripture um that is not a neutral thing that is not something that is undangerous or something that is yeah no big deal okay no false doctrine is a real nasty and pernicious thing it is a horrible thing and it wars with the truth and the thing is it always starts small and then becomes large you know think of it this way okay um if dragons were to exist today i'd not one who's seen a dragon, but um you know I've seen movie depictions of dragons and i you know I've seen several movies where they depict dragons being born and, and you know and they're just the cutest little things um you know they come in an egg and and then they hatch okay well let, let's go to like a you know, let's go to something dragon ish okay y'all remember from time to time if you read your news that from time to time you get these weird stories in your local paper uh, about people who have attempted to raise alligators or crocodiles. And, you know, they are just the cutest little things. Have you ever watched, like, you know, Animal Planet when they show baby crocodiles, you know, or baby alligators? I mean, they're so cute, and they make this little chirping noise, and they're really not that long. And, you know, you just want to pick them up and, you know, stroke their head and, and, you know, have them close their eyes. And, yeah, you're thinking, oh, this is just a harmless little critter. And then they grow. Yeah, see that's the thing. <laughs> they grow and and then what happens is is that as these stories go, you know, it's kind of the idea of dragons here, well, they become dangerous the bigger that they get because well, you know, crocodiles, dragons, you know, alligators and things like that, they well, they are what they are and they do what they do because they is what they is. And I know that's horrible grammar, but you get what I'm saying. You know, the idea is is that you know that if you keep an alligator in your home long enough, Eventually, you're going to have to put it somewhere uh, – you're going to have to cage it or fence it off or do something in order to protect yourself from it because left to roam free in the home, it would probably eat you. And so – and but see, this, see, it doesn't matter how much love and affection that you showed it early on because, you know, <laughs> you know as cute as it was, um, they grow up and, well, they're <clears> – <throat> ravenous carnivores uh who have are no respecters of persons or or animals when they're hungry and they have quite the appetite think of lies as baby alligators or small dragons or things like that a very dangerous critter that when it's a baby it just doesn't look all that harmful and, you know, and see, you can convince people, oh, see, it's just a baby. You can pet it. You can see, isn't it cute? Oh, you can hold it. See? And then, you know, you get your finger bit. It's like, wow, that, you know, ouch. But, you, you know, having your finger bit and then losing a leg, well, those are two different things, right? But see, the thing is, is that lies, as they grow and they grow, they become more and more hungry. And the thing that they feed on is the truth. The You know, you bring lies in, they become, well, they eventually have to take the predominant spot, and they will not tolerate the truth. Lies are never neutral, okay? False doctrine is always a lie. False doctrine is always a lie, and it's not neutral. It is something that is very very hungry very ravenous very jealous very aggressive okay by its very nature you don't think that you can mix truth and error in equal portions or um, dilute error with with enough truth to make it to neutralize it you can't you can't do it this is why scripture commands pastors to teach only that which is in accord with sound doctrine and to refute and rebuke those who contradict it because false doctrine will always begin small grow large and then well <clears throat> consume you and uh, and drag you kicking and screaming into hell that's kind of its goal and that's what it does because by its very nature those are its attributes. You get what I'm saying? That's kind of the metaphor. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We have got I mean, kind of some strange things we've got to do here today. Um, number one, we are going to uh, take a look or take a listen to a uh, well something recent that Todd Bentley said. Something recent that Todd Bentley said. And if you remember a while back, we covered the story that Todd Bentley was um, barred from Entering the United Kingdom, the, apparently the, some folks there in the U, in the UK, uh, members of Parliament had determined that Todd Bentley was well a public nuisance and a danger to the uh, to the goodwill of uh, the citizens of Great Britain, and they would not allow him into the country. Praise God! Well, one of the guys who spearheaded keeping Todd Bentley from coming to the UK, well, unfortunately, he just died. Okay. And Todd Bentley is going to be discussing what are the reasons for that. And you need to hear it because uh, the God he's describing, that ain't the biblical God that he's describing. So we're going to take a look at that. And then I got a question for you. Here's the question What's the deal with Ravi Zacharias? Okay. Ravi Zacharias is somebody who has a fairly long career as a legit kind of top drawer a Christian apologist. I mean, he's not somebody who's stupid, but he, he has just appeared on Joyce Meyer's program and called her, get this, a great Bible teacher. What is he thinking? Is he not aware of the fact that she is a word of faith heretic who teaches the word of faith heresy? She believes that uh, we're gods and things like that. I mean, is he not aware of her false teaching and false doctrine? We're going to have to take a listen to what he said and ask uh, the questions. What's the deal with Ravi Zacharias? Why is he endorsing Joyce Meyer? We'll take a look at that. Um, Let's see here. Um, Then we'll kind of switch gears. And um, boy, I got to be careful on this one. Um, If you've been watching the news, then you're familiar with the fact that the the cyber terrorists organization called Anonymous – these are cyber hackers and terrorists – they have uh, basically taken Westboro Baptist Church, and you have to put Baptist Church in air quotes, otherwise you're guilty of breaking the commandment that says thou shalt not bear false witness. It, it's true. Whenever you, if, if Folks, whenever you're talking about Westboro Baptist Church, make sure you put Baptist Church in air quotes, otherwise you're lying, okay, because they're not a Baptist church, by not by any stretch of the imagination, nor are they a church. They're not Baptists and they're not a church. But Westboro has uh, become... The target of the, uh, the the cyber terrorists known as Anonymous, and th- what they are doing should concern you. Okay, and I'll explain why that why what Anonymous is doing to Westboro um, Baptist Church in air quotes should concern you. Okay, um, and then uh, you know, we didn't get to this last week because of the uh, the shooting in Connecticut last week. And then we'll end off this hour by looking at uh, Greg Laurie's. Uh, uh, interview with the Christian Post answering the question: Is it acceptable for Christians to drink? Then we'll take our uh, uh, we'll take our second break, and we come back in the second hour. We'll be reviewing a man. This is a disappointing sermon. W- you, one you got to listen to carefully. Um, we're going to be listening to a sermon entitled "Hospitality" by Jeremiah Koran of uh, Westbridge Community Church in Saint Michael, Minnesota, and th- I mean. When you hear a sermon like this, I don't care if it's in an upbeat, uh, seeker-driven environment. uh, The the first thing that should come to your mind is liberal theology, and I'll explain that to you. Basically, moralistic, therapeutic deism is what's going on here. So we have literally a ton of ground that we need to cover today. And uh, with that, we need to dive into the program. So make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience. If you don't listen to Fighting for the Faith with a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, you might want to consider doing it. Trust me. Uh, you know, it's all. About, I want you to have the best listener experience possible, and that is a way of enhancing it. Um, so make yourself comfortable, and uh, here we go. So do you remember the story where Tom Bentley was not permitted to entered the United Kingdom and he was considered to be a menace and a danger to the folks in the UK? Well, the guy who spearheaded that, the member of parliament who spearheaded that, has died. He died of cancer um, a few months back. And well, Todd Bentley um, and Rick Joyner recently discussed the the demise of this member of parliament. And I want you to listen. It's kind of a long segment and you need to hear the context of what's going on here. And uh, here... Todd Bentley's explanation for the demise of this uh, member of the United Kingdom's parliament. Here we go.
2: I had a profound visitation from the Lord in a dream. And in this dream, I remember being at Morningstar. In fact, I was in a conference setting just like this. And an individual, before I could walk out of the room, ran up to me and he grabbed me and he said, "Uh, Todd, mark your calendars. That's what he actually said. He said, Mark your calendar. And okay. I looked at the man and I said, I'm sorry.
1: Okay, now let's listen to what he's saying. He's saying he had a dream. Okay. And in this dream, somebody came to him and said, Mark your calendar. This is kind of the setup for this. This is the whole context of it. And by the way, thanks to Apprising Ministry, Ken Silva over at apprising.org for putting this online for us. But um, he's saying, Mark your calendars. And there's a reason for this, the, and it'll circle back and make sense. So just kind of put a flag down in your mind as to pay attention to some of the details of this dream that Todd Bentley claims that he had.
2: You got the wrong man. Maybe you should go to Bob Jones or Rick Joyner or Bobby Connors or one of the other prophets because I don't work by charts and times and calendars and, you know, what's happening in Israel on this day or this festival or the Feast of Tabernacle or Pentecost, you know. You know, I don't operate like that, you know, and so – I rebuked the man, and uh, the man was from Cuba, is one thing I noticed. The man was from Cuba, but living in Puerto Rico, and it was significant to have to do with one of the greatest revivals that's going to happen in Cuba and Puerto Rico, and the fact that we were right here in Morningstar was significant, because this represents
1: the prophetic movement. So he's uh, he's had a dream and now he's interpreting his he's just like Daniel, you know. Isn't that just amazing? And a lot of what God is doing not only here. By the way, that was sarcasm. There are a lot of great prophetic places and churches
2: and ministries and prophets all over the world, but for many years Morning Star has been on the cutting edge, pioneering, and I believe coming, No, they haven't. They've been pioneering heresy. Coming into a new season again of pioneering a lot of what's happening in the prophetic movement. So that's been the ministry here um, before our time. And so the fact that we we're in this venue, which has a lot to do with the international you know, anointing that's here and the restoration, but in this dream, when I said to the man, God doesn't talk to me like that, he said, the Lord said this time, mark your calendar, September 29th. It's the day of new beginnings.
1: I I kind of find it convenient. Can you show me, Todd? Um, when you receive this vision, you know, and like, can I see a timestamp and a date stamp on the video that predates this September calendar event?
2: Everything's going to become new. Something is going to be released. And I woke up from the dream and I thought, Lord, I don't even I don't know what it is. All I know is there's this shift, like a divine plumb line that's going to come September 29. And something's going to happen that's very significant. I didn't know if it was for the world. I didn't know if it was for a, an individual. I didn't know. I knew it would be for me in some capacity, but I, I didn't have the full revelation at that time. And so I've been waiting for that day to come, September 29th. In the meantime, many of you that have followed our ministry, prayed for our ministry, and we just thank you for that, um, are aware in the last six weeks or so, That we had a world tour, that we were going to be over in England and uh, some of those countries over there, Wales, Ireland, in the UK. We love England. We love the UK. I don't know if we have anybody here visiting, but we just absolutely pray for revival. We believe a great revival is happening and is going to come in England and in the UK. Great destiny. And I need to really say that. But uh, we came against some resistance, and I I know it wasn't the Lord. But. uh, It got the media and uh, a lot of people around the world, you know, especially over there in the United Kingdom, newspapers and different things like Huffington Post and The Guardian and BBC and all these major media outlets, which we haven't really seen. The media have such an interest in what we were doing since the height of the revival in Lakeland, Florida, when it was at its strongest. That was the real, really the last time.
1: That would be the false revival in Lakeland, Florida. And yes, I want to make sure that he's... Honest here.
2: There was such a media frenzy, and one of the controversies it was all over is uh, one of the headlines that made the newspaper over there in London was a faith kicking evangelist that kicks a woman in the face to cure cancer.
1: Yeah, that was a story you told. We covered that here at Fighting for the Faith in the early years of our programming.
2: And it kind of made all these newspapers, and they started, it went viral. They started picking up all these stories about, you know, unorthodox methods of healing,
1: and uh, that... This- yeah, it's not just unorthodox, quote, methods of healing. You, you're not a healer. You, you have yet to provide substantive, verifiable proof that there's been even one legit healing as a result of your quote ministry,
2: man has a violent ministry and and uh, started to portray some things in the media, and uh, it, it it was a surprising to me how quickly it became front page news and all the newspapers and started spreading all over the world. There was
1: an individual. Yeah, it shouldn't surprise you because Jesus never once healed a woman or anybody by kicking him in the face.
2: That was an MP in England.
1: Member Just, of Parliament. Yeah, Member of Parliament outside. Now that's Rick Joyner, you know, jumping in here. An MP is a Member of Parliament. ...of, uh, uh, the City
2: of London in a place called Croydon, which was one of the areas where they were going to host us for four days in one of the city halls that we had there. And there were some people that heard we were coming, and, and, uh, you know, Rick's always said over the years, I probably had a gift of controversy. And, uh... I think we've helped the devil out sometimes more than we've needed to but uh, nevertheless uh, some of these things and reports you know got to one of these individuals that was involved in for over 20 years one of the highest uh, um, men that was a part of the labor minister at one time over there in London anyways he, he got some reports from some people in the city that I was coming and they begun to look at my background my testimony and begun to look at some things that were on the internet of course and uh Got very concerned that, that this kind of an individual was going to come into their country and come in as they should have been into their city. And so he led a campaign, a band, which made it all the way up to the highest level of government in England. And they, make a long story short, banned us from the country. Not denied a visa. There was no visa process, there was no, it was just an outright ban. From the highest level of government, in fact, I picked up my telephone 12 hours before I was going to get on my flight to spend this month in the U.K., and when my telephone rang and I answered it, it was the court reading out in the court in England right up to the highest level of government and basically saying, we don't want, you're a threat to British society.
1: You, You are. You're a threat to like any society. You're a threat to the American society. Because of your false doctrine, false dreams, false visions, false miracles, and uh, everything else that goes along with it. And we, we don't
2: permit you. You're banned uh, without any appeal. They're, they're ca- now,
1: aren't you Canadian? I wish the U.S. government would do the same thing with you. And be no process. In fact, a, a
2: lawyer that thought, well, you know, that's not the case. There's always a process, started to get involved and took up our case, and then finally came back to us just a week or so ago and said, yeah, I'm sorry, but in this instant, there really is no process. This is from the highest authority. This, has got, this is like gotten all the way to the president. This is from the top. And I, I just, you know, saw it as such a resistance, because really what we're standing against is healing. And miracles.
1: No, they're standing against a false showman who's fleecing people in the name of God and who literally is a menace to society. And signs and wonders. And, uh, and yeah, there's not a single legit sign or wonder that has happened as a result of your quote ministry.
2: It made the headlines, especially over there in the UK. So um, I said, well, Lord, we put it in your hands. We're going to pray for the government in England. We're going to bless England. We're going to love them. And when God closes one door, he opens another. And the doors opened. And we went into Norway. We went into Finland. We went into Austria and Germany. And we went into Rome. And uh, and uh, then we went to Jerusalem. And God just opened wide the rest of Scandinavia and Central Europe. And we saw some of the most incredible. Yeah, by the way, this is all
1: blasphemy. God has nothing to do with your ministry Todd to say that God opened doors for you to minister is a flat out lie
2: all notable remarkable miracles take place uh, um, in just those few weeks uh, that we're over there in Europe God really opened some doors uh, and really showed up in power and that's the way that it is notice the cadence
1: open some doors uh, for us to minister yes
2: uh. when one door closes the Lord always opens another door and uh, I think and is there anything you want to say? No, I, I think one thing that's significant on um, the whole thing is uh, the Lord's justice is a word that we have in our spirit.
1: Mm, now we're changing gears. So now he's going to switch gears to the Lord's justice. Remember, I told you the member of parliament who was spearheading keeping Todd Bentley out of the country, um, you know, he's died. So now we're going to switch to God's justice. Listen to this.
2: And I'm going to share a testimony with you that's very sobering and very alarming. And I think we're going to take a moment and pray for some people today in government, in England, in the UK. And uh, we're going to pray for a gentleman's family. But uh, September 29th, I was preaching in Ohio. And just before midnight, I got a report that the man that led the ban and the campaign against us in England died suddenly of cancer on September 29th.
1: Oh, uh, poor guy. Imagine he could have been healed by you, but all you had to do is smash his face in with your boot.
3: Remember the Lord said mark your calendar. Now this is an important revelation.
1: No, it's not.
3: And I almost even just sharing the story
2: with trepidation. I I I started weeping. And I thought, Lord, This man had been battling with stage 4 cancer and led the campaign. And all the news reports were faith-kicking evangelists that cures cancer. And it was all against whether there's anybody that's really been healed of cancer.
1: Yeah, show us the doctor's medical records that show that a single person who's had cancer and come to you has legitimately been healed. When the media asked for those records during the Lakeland Revival, you failed to produce a single verified or verifiable uh, healing of cancer at the whole Lakeland Revival. Weird, huh? It's as if God heals in secret.
2: And I thought, Lord, I've never been banned from a country. I've never been, you know, this is like Smith Wigglesworth Kind of things, so and I don't have time to address all the controversy. I'm sure there's people that are in here going, "Yeah, what about that? Did you kick a woman with your biker boot in the face? What about those, you know, people that you punched and slapped and kicked?" And you know, you know, the untold story is um, out of the 13 isolated incidents in faith healing ministry in the last 15 years, where I've operated in the gift of faith, which I would call like Smith Wigglesworth every one of those cases were healed.
1: Evidence, please. Just because you say it doesn't mean it's true.
2: And that none of the individuals on the other side had any problem at that time.
1: Yeah, I remember when the Lakeland revival was going on, they actually followed somebody who claimed to, you claimed to have healed, and they died just a few weeks later. We continue.
2: Nor has our ministry received one lawsuit for any kind of violent ministry. You'd think if we had this ministry that was really hurting people, we would probably have a few arrests or a few, you know, police or something. But uh, in 15 years, we haven't had one individual that's ever claimed an injury, brought a lawsuit. But, you know, you don't hear the other side of the story. But
3: and you hear a lot of rumors that there are lawsuits and all this. Not true.
2: Yeah. And uh, when the Lord gave me the dream, I had no idea what was coming because the only promise that I received was in the ninth month, September 2-9. And I kept thinking about the scripture Haggai 2-9. And it was in the ninth month that God gave the promise that the greater glory, the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former house and all I know is God's saying starting September 29th there's something of the realm of my glory my presence and power that's going to show up and all things are going to become new and the church is going to be able to two years from now look back and mark that from that day there was a clear release of God's presence and power and I had no idea and I'd like to just take a moment if we could could we take one minute and pray for this gentleman by the name of Malcolm Wicks.
1: I'm gonna skip through this prayer. I let's just skip forward a little bit to where he finishes his prayer and then Rick Joyner comes in with some final thoughts.
3: Now <clears> he <throat> said mark your calendar. Now I think this represents the major opposition. This was the biggest opposition I've seen a whole country ban somebody, a preacher of the gospel. Now
1: Todd Bentley is not a
3: preacher of the gospel. Look at some of the crazy people that get in that country. Terrorists and, I mean, but this, mark this day, God is removing opposition from his people.
1: God is removing opposition from his people. So if you oppose Todd Todd Bentley, God's probably going to kill you.
3: He is going to take the opposition out of the way. And listen, we need to let the pure and holy fear of the Lord come upon us too.
1: Uh, You are supremely lacking in that.
3: I tell you, it is going to be extremely costly to get in God's way for what he is about to do.
1: Yeah, so don't get in God's way, otherwise God will kill you.
3: We need to take this with the utmost seriousness and uh, we don't want anybody dying. We don't want Ananias' and Sapphira's. But uh, it, this is serious business.
1: Yeah, serious business. Yeah, you, you oppose Todd Bentley. God's going to take you out like you took out Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, seriously, I don't even recognize the God they claim that they represent. And think of, think of the implications here. You know, at this point, the the message to the people in the United Kingdom is, well, clear. You either let Todd Bentley come in to kick your little old ladies in the face and heal them of cancer by punching them in the gut and stuff like that, or, well, God's going to take you out, just like you took out that member of parliament with cancer. In other words, um, the God that, uh, well, Todd Bentley and Rick Joyner worship is pretty much, uh, well, a Mafia don. Yeah, you either do what he says, or he's going to put you on ice, lay you flat. You get what I'm saying? capiche? Frightening. Absolutely frightening. This is not the God of scriptures. This is a completely other God. Sounds a lot more like Satan. At least that's my opinion. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We have a Westboro Baptist update, and you have to put Baptists in quotes. And a um, question about Ravi Zacharias, too. And also, is drinking acceptable for Christians? Stay tuned. We're going to answer all that on the other side of the break. Hang on.
4: When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
3: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
0: Monty Python's Flying Circus
1: Church The management of Monty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances in the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey.
5: I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge, and
2: 40 healed during the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that, see what
5: the Lord does. You guys okay to the little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Are you kidding Put your right hand in, put your right hand out, you put your right hand in, you put your right hand out, you put your right hand in, you take your right hand out, you put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left, hand in, you take your left, hand out, you put your left, hand in, you take your left, hand out, you put your left, hand in, you take your left. Hand out, put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left foot in, put your left foot out. You put your left foot Put your left foot out, put your left foot in, put your left foot out, put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all out. You take yeah, your whole self, self in, self you, self in. you shake it up and right. no right. oh yeah. yeah, you it all you shake it your whole self in, put your whole self in, put your whole self in, put your whole self in, you whole
6: Glory. Your glory. Healing. Miracle. Healing. Miracle. I, uh, when I started doing the hokey pokey at first with the arms, had nothing, nothing real effect. But then, as soon as I just started, we started doing the whole we'll put your left foot in, your right foot in, both of my knees, you know, one at a time, I could just
4: feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain. I said, you said, Start checking yourself. I said, Squat down. That's awesome. Thank you, Lord,
2: for new knees. In yes. Jesus' name. Come on.
5: Come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life. And a couple of we- about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore uh, up until today. And when we did that hokey pokey, she came up and testified all the pain. <laughs> yeah, good on, good on. Let's do it. All about. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. Put it in. and you shake it? How you shake it? All about. How you shake it? out How you shake it? How you shake it? How you shake it? How you shake it? How you shake it?
0: Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail... How the left and the right are coming together, both religiously and spiritually, to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's religious Trojan horse. It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical worldview weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical worldview weekend keynote presentations. You can. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at SituationRoom.net. SituationRoom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at WorldviewWeekend.com.
4: Hello, you've reached the office of Pirate Christian Radio.
0: How can I help you?
5: Um, yes. I have a problem.
0: Oh, uh, what's the problem? Well, that's not much of a. And
5: I was wondering if you had anything that could make it look nice.
0: Well, yes, actually, Pyro Christian Radio is selling our very own Christmas bulbs this year.
4: Oh, those sound nice.
0: It gets better though. Not
4: only do you get a red Christmas bulb with Pyro Christian Radio's logo on it, but it comes adorned with a handmade beaded topper that contains eight real Savorsky crystals.
5: It sounds so pretty. How do I get one? Uh,
4: very easily. Just go to pyrochristianradio.com forward slash bake sale.
5: Thank you very
4: much. You're uh, very welcome. Have a Merry Christmas. Oh,
5: you too. Honey, get off that ladder. You're going
1: to break. All right, we're back. warning um Todd Bentley is not a healer he's not a prophet he doesn't receive visions from God he actually works for God's enemy just saying just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 all right moving along i do not have music for this next segment so i apologize that we don't regularly do Westboro Baptist updates, although I've, by the way, have put Baptist and church in air quotes, otherwise you're, you're lying. But um, I, I, in fact, I've interviewed, uh, um, was it Shirley Phelps Roper on Fighting for the Faith a few years ago. That was quite the spectacular interview. But um, over the weekend, if you're not familiar with what happened, there's a hacktivist group that calls themselves Anonymous. And they literally took down the Westboro Baptist website Um, and posted their own video message there, and have uh, published personal, private financial information, private contact information, things like that, of the the prominent members of Westboro Baptist on the Internet. And this is, listen, as horrible and disgusting and offensive and repugnant uh, Westboro Baptist is, and believe me, they are all of that. When I heard that they were going to be picketing the funerals, of the children who were killed in Connecticut last week, I mean, I I almost lost it. I was so disgusted by that. Okay? What they're doing is above and beyond. In fact, it sounds like you know the God they worship is similar to the God that Todd Bentley worships, but it ain't the real God. But uh, I want you to hear part of the message that was left on the Westboro Baptist website by the hacktivist group called Anonymous. Listen in.
6: Hello, Westboro Baptist Church allow us to introduce ourselves we are anonymous as you may not have acknowledged our existence we on the other hand have recognized yours we have seen your depraved methods of disseminating your message of hate throughout the united states of america We have witnessed you defaming the memories of those who sacrificed themselves for the security of our nation, disrupting the peace of the educational environment within high schools and universities, breeding hatred within the fragile minds of your own next of kin, desecrating the name of God by protesting in the proximity of churches and synagogues, and mangling the biblical text to conform in accordance with your malevolent cause. Your pseudo-faith is abhorrent, and your leaders, repugnant your impact and cause is hazardous to the lives of millions and you fail to see the wrong in promoting the deaths of innocent people. You are self-appointed servants of God who rewrite the words of his sacred scripture to adhere to your prejudice. Your hatred supersedes your faith, and you use faith to promote your hatred, since your one-dimensional thought protocol will conform not to any modern logic. We will not debate, argue, or attempt to reason with you. Instead, we have unanimously deemed your organization to be harmful to the population of the United States of America, and have therefore decided to execute an agenda of action which will progressively dismantle your institution of deceitful pretext and extreme bias, and cease when your zealotry runs drive. We recognize you as serious opponents, and do not expect our campaign to terminate in a short period of time. Attrition is our weapon, and we will waste no time money, effort, and enjoyment, in tearing your resolve into pieces, as with exposing the incongruity of your distorted faith. Anonymous possesses a plethora of information within our network about the many divisions of Christianity and numerous other religious doctrines. Many of us are versed in the Biblical text. And we can identify each and every of your violations of Scripture. You abuse the Holy Bible which you do not fully comprehend and know not of the thousands of authors to impose upon other people when you can simply coalesce with your loved ones and in the manner you deem plausible. You engage in reciprocal fornication with another man and preach adultery as a sin you, Shirley Lindfeldt's robber, violated Deuteronomy 518. As a result, your son Joshua is the living, breathing proof of your act of simple loneliness.
1: Okay, I'm going to stop there. Okay, Hard to understand. Let me kind of break this down for you. Basically, this hacktivist group that calls themselves Anonymous have, has taken it upon themselves to engage in an illegal activity designed to dismantle and destroy... Uh, group with which they disagree with. And here's the problem. As repugnant as Westboro Baptist is, they are still protected by the laws of the United States of America. What Anonymous is doing in the name of, well, I'm not sure what, is basically engaging in illegal activity to destroy somebody whom they disagree with in the realm of ideas that's not how this is done and if they can do this to westboro baptist they could do it to me they could do it to you and this is a weapon that is horrific think of it this way okay today it's westboro baptist but what if it's me tomorrow my website has been hacked I have experienced personally uh, at Fighting for the Faith as well as Pirate Christian Radio, denial of service attacks by activist groups, okay, that have made it difficult for people to download our files, have taken our website offline. In fact, Christmas a couple of years ago, our server was hacked and taken down by a group of people who were homosexual activists. I don't talk about this much. But see, the idea is is that... Um, we're no longer, you know, when somebody does that, we're not dealing with the idea of the marketplace of ideas. We're talking about the destruction of people whom you disagree with. And if it can happen to Westboro Baptist, it can happen to me, it can happen to you, it can happen to your church, it can happen to your pastor, it could happen to somebody who you like politically. This is no This is no weapon that should be used. If you're going to disagree with somebody, do so in the world of ideas. Do so in the world of the marketplace of ideas and debate with these people and let the marketplace decide. Yes, what Westboro Baptist is doing and has done is absolutely reprehensible. And the reality is is that what Anonymous is doing is no solution at all, and this should frighten you. What's happening to them... I'm telling you that you're just one step away from having it happen to you, your pastor, to me, to Pirate Christian Radio, or whomever. Yes, we must speak up and speak up loudly against the egregious, horrible, maniacal deity that Westboro Baptist claims to represent and has hijacked the Bible You know, to try to create the impression that that's the God of the Bible. But we do that in the marketplace of ideas, not by engaging in illegal activity to silence their voice. Frightening days that we live in. Switching gears again, I feel like we're steering all over the place on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Here's the question I have. Um, What's the deal with Ravi Zacharias? Why is somebody who is a world-class apologist, uh, number one, appearing on Joyce Meyer's program, and then while appearing on Joyce Meyer's program calling her a great Bible teacher um, that God is using. Um, Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong here. Wasn't Ravi Zacharias the guy who got the tap on the shoulder to edit Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults, after the death of Walter Martin? I mean, The Kingdom of the Cults has his name on it. Is he not aware that the word of faith, heresy, is a heresy and it's cultic? Is he not aware... That Joyce Meyer is a Bible twister par excellence and a word of faith uh, heretic? Is he not aware of this? Why would he endorse Joyce Meyer's teaching? Yeah, listen in. We've got several different bites here uh, that I want, I want to play for you from Ravi Zacharias' appearance just this week on Joyce Meyer's television program. Listen in.
6: The following program is paid for by the friends and partners of Joyce Meyer Ministries. But
1: why do
2: I believe the Bible is truth? Stay with us, and I will discuss this and
1: other questions. Which one of t- Another question here before we get to this. Um, is Ravi Zacharias not aware of the biblical prohibition for women to be pastrixes? There's no such thing as a female pastor according to the scriptures. Is he not aware of that truth?
2: Today's leading defenders of the faith, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Well, doctor, it's so good to have you on the program today.
7: Finally, nice to meet you, Joyce. Nice to I, be with you there, here. Pain does have a good application if it's
1: looking... Now, you notice we're flipping through here to different segments. Listen carefully to what Ravi, uh, Ravi Zacharias, the way Joyce says it, um, says about Joyce Meyer. Listen carefully.
2: That yeah. in the right way. And really, most of the things that are a blessing to me in my life now, what I know, the depth of what I know, knowing God has all come in the most difficult times in my life. Not
7: I the think, easiest. I think that's why God has used you. You cannot. So, Ravi Zacharias just
1: said that that's why I think God has used you. So, God uses a word of faith, prosperity heretic like Joyce Meyer a female pastrix despite the biblical po- prohibition against
7: pastrixes what's going on with ravi zacharias we continue understand the yes, listener sure. and that's what we are about right now but god is doing some great things i know people yes, like you on yeah. television and so on so
1: god's doing great things through people
7: like joyce meyer on television really You see the growth of the church in China and the incredible response to the gospel in the Middle East. So, you know, maybe the focus will shift Mm -hmm. and the missionaries will start coming from the east, which may be a a good switch right now. So God's doing some great. And here's the final one.
2: Well, Well, welcome back. Dr. Rabbi Zacharias is with me today, and we're getting ready to discuss the question what
7: is truth? What is truth? You know, it's interesting in the Gospel of John, the 18th chapter, and you're such a great Bible. I mean, this is a great question. What is truth? Is the word of
1: faith heresy truth, Dr. Zacharias? Is it true that um, Joyce Meyer is a female pastor, despite the biblical prohibition?
7: What is truth? Teaching these things, I'm sure you're dealt with it before. You're such a great Bible teaching these things, I'm sure you're... Did you hear that? Yeah, he said that you're
1: such a great Bible teacher. Backing it up just a little, listen again, if you blink, you'll miss it.
7: What is truth? You know, it's interesting in the Gospel of John, the 18th chapter, and you're such a great Bible teacher in these things, I'm sure you're... You're such a great Bible teacher. Why on earth
1: is Ravi Zacharias saying that Joyce Meyer is a great Bible teacher? What's going on here? Has he decided to compromise the truth in order to sell his books? Is that what's going on here? I mean, I would like an explanation from him as to why he thinks that Joyce Meyer is a great Bible teacher when just about everything that comes out of her mouth is twisted and a representation of the word of faith heresy. What is going on That's the question that needs to be asked. Those of you who support Ravi Zacharias, you might want to ask him why he thinks that Joyce Meyer is such a great Bible teacher. This female pastrix, despite the prohibition against there being female pastrixes, who teaches the word of faith heresy, why he thinks that she is such a great Bible teacher. I'd like to get an explanation from him because somebody like him shouldn't be endorsing Joyce Meyer. He should be exposing her for the heretic that she is. Moving along, final segment of this hour. Headline reads, Greg Laurie, is it acceptable for Christians to drink? It's a topic we cover from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith, one that we haven't talked about in a while. This was written by Alex Marashko of the Christian Post, and here's what it reads. Evangelist Pastor Greg Laurie tackled the question of whether it's acceptable for Christians to drink in a recent blog post by pointing out that John the Baptist is a good role model. Quote, He drank neither wine nor strong drink. Quote, John gives us a good model for life. He drank neither wine nor strong drink. Personally, I don't drink at all, Laurie states. That is due to some degree to coming from an alcoholic home and seeing the devastation that drinking can bring. In his blog post, quote, Some thoughts on drinking in this holiday season, Laurie describes how John was set apart by God from the time he He was in his mother's womb. In Luke 1, verse 15, the angel said of John, quote, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Among the sobering statistics about alcohol consumption in the United States in 2010, 211 children were killed in drunk driving crashes. Out of those 211 deaths, 131, 62% were riding with the drunk driver. Also, adults who drank too much and got behind the wheel amounted to 112 million times two years ago. That is almost 300 thousand incidences of drinking and driving each day according to the center of disease control and prevention perhaps one of the most revealing statistics about the harm of alcohol abuse three out of four uh, convicted jail inmates were involved in alcohol or drugs at the time of their current offense according to statistics cited on the faith-based recovery website uh, maryangelo.com quote this is uh, this is greg laurie i can't think of a single good thing that comes from drinking But I can think of many bad things that come from it. Broken homes, violence, accidents, people killed on the road by drunk drivers, addiction destroying your health. The list goes on. Lori writes, quote, Drinking will never make anything better, only worse. Every illustration of drunkenness in the Bible is a disaster. Noah became drunk in his nakedness. He, act, he acted shamelessly. Lot became drunk and his daughters, committed incest with him. Belshazzar and Daniel 5 had a drunken feast and worshipped his false gods. He lost his kingdom that night. Many a kingdom, family, career, ministry, and life have been lost through drinking. Okay, now I'm going to stop right there. Okay, here's the problem, okay? The problem is this, John the Baptist isn't the one who ultimately sets the example for us, it's Jesus, okay? If we're going to be accurate and tell the truth of what God has revealed regarding drinking in Scripture, then we're going to need to not selectively pick verses that seem to only talk about not having alcohol and exclude those passages where clearly alcohol is given as a gift from God. Okay, Now, that being the case, here's the analogy I would like to set forward. Basically, sex and alcohol are very similar. And here's what I mean by that. When we look at the, what Scripture says regarding these two things, sex and alcohol, it's very clear that both of them are given as gifts from God, both of them. However, both of these gifts could absolutely be abused. Now, let me give you an example. I can tell you from scripture that every single instance of somebody abusing the gift of sex has resulted in terrible, horrible things happening. Okay? I would point to the daughters of Lot, who, well, Had an illicit relations with their father, and they gave us the Moabites. Bad things happened. I would point to David and Bathsheba. Horrible things happened as a result of their sexual immorality. And over and again, sexual immorality has led to terrible things happening to people in Scripture. It's ripped families apart. By the way, um, you know, I come from a divorced family. My parents divorced. Right. So, I mean, I know all about how divorce tears apart families and things like that. So, I mean, and there's plenty of you out there who's had your family ripped apart in divorce as a result of, you know, certain things, including adultery. Right. So, using their logic, we must come to the conclusion that, therefore, since abusing sex, nothing ever good happens from it, therefore, the Christian thing to do is for no Christian ever anywhere to ever have sex. Doesn't follow, does it? No. Instead, we are to look at the scripture and realize, oh, this is a gift given by God and it's to be used a particular way. It is only to be enjoyed in a particular setting with within a particular context, i.e., within the context of a man and woman in a married relationship. Plain and simple. Anything outside of that is an abuse of the gift that God has given us. So let me come back to Greg Laurie's argument here. Greg Laurie's argument, the, uh, John the Baptist, gives us a good model for life. He drank neither wine nor strong drink, I would like to point you to some biblical texts. <clears throat> you'll need your Bible, and you'll need to open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We will begin at verse 11. Now, please don't tell William Tapley that I began reading a biblical passage at chapter 11, verse 11. Otherwise, the numerological uh, prophetic significance will, well, it'll just it'll cause him to go bananas. But Matthew, chapter 11, verse 11, <clears throat> this is Jesus talking. Here's what he said. Truly I say to you that among those born of women there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, uh, let him hear." To what shall I compare this generation? Well, it's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. Well, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and, well, you didn't mourn. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, this is verse 19, this would be Jesus talking about himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, And they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You see, my example to follow is Jesus. And Jesus, by his own admission in Matthew chapter 11, said that he was a drinker. And he was even accused of of being a drunkard. He wasn't, because drunkenness is a sin. In other words, Jesus partook of alcohol. Jesus didn't seem to care too much about those with a weak conscience, did he? Jesus himself was a drinker by his own admission. And we know this too from the Gospel of John. For instance, Gospel of John chapter 2. Here's what it says, starting at verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana. In Galilee, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew it, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves uh, the good wine, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely or drunk too much, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, I want to make something clear here. There are people who literally take what this passage says and says, Oh, well, it wasn't alcoholic wine. wash." Anybody with just a rudimentary understanding of history knows that it wasn't until Welch came along of Welch's grape juice in the 19th century and the ability to, I think, homogenize uh, grape juice that they were able to stop the fermentation process. If you take a look at a cluster of grapes, look closely at a single grape, you will see on that grape a white, dusty-looking substance. That, folks, is yeast. Okay? Okay. And there is, until the 19th century, there was no way to stop that yeast that's on the skin of a grape from fermenting, okay? There was no such thing as grape juice until, until Welch came along. This is a historical fact, okay? So let's get this straight. John the Baptist, he had a particular mission that he was called to. And it was God's will that he didn't drink or have strong drink. But that's not a general rule for all of us. And Jesus himself, who was the sinless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was a drinker. And his enemies accused him of being a drunkard. And he also turned water into wine. Not just any wine, but good wine. The best wine, and the reason why the, uh, the the guy you know who's the head of the party there at that wedding feast was saying, "What are you doing? Um, you know, you, you serve the good wine first, and then you serve the bad wine. It's real simple, okay? When you've had a few glasses of wine, okay, you lose the ability to taste, and as you become you know a little bit, you know, say joyous in heart." Um, you're not paying attention to the bouquet of of said wine. That's when you serve the cheaper stuff because no one's going to notice the difference, right? But Jesus, he saved the best to last. The the wine that he made was great wine, okay? I would also point you to some other passages, okay? Um, For instance, Psalm 104, okay? Psalm 104, I'll start at verse one so we get some context here. And in Psalm 104... There is literally a litany of good things that God gives. Here's what it says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O oh, Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind, he makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. "'You covered it with the deep as with a garment, and water stood above the mountains. "'At your rebuke they fled, at the sound of your thunder they took flight. "'The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. "'You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. "'You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills.' They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides then, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, the, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Now notice here that this is you know, walking through God's gifts that he's given to us in his creation. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly; the cedars of Lebanon that He planted in them. The birds build their nests; the stork has her home in her in in the fir trees. Did you catch that part there in verse 15? That God has made wine to gladden the heart of man. Satan did not create wine; God did. It is a gift given to us from God, and it's part of God's creation. Just like sex. Just like food. Just like anything else. By the way, Satan can't create a darn thing. The only thing that Satan can do is twist and manipulate and make evil of the good things that God has given. Period. According to this passage, Psalm 104, Wine to gladden the heart is one of the gifts that God has given us, okay? What worries me are when Christians try to be holier than God, holier than Christ, and somehow make it a badge of orthodoxy or a badge of Christianity as to whether or not you do or don't do, drink or don't drink, smoke or don't smoke, or whatever, okay? There is absolutely not one single biblical prohibition that says thou shalt not drink therefore since the passages are clear that this is a gift given by god in the creation that jesus himself turned water into wine and jesus by his own admission was a drinker a christian has the freedom and the liberty to enjoy this good gift that god has given us as long as they do not Turn it into something that they are enslaved to or go against the, the, the basically, the restrictions that God has placed on this gift. And that's this. The Bible does forbid drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. To be enslaved to a God good, a good gift that God has given you is absolutely sinful and wretched and wrong. And there are those people, because they have been enslaved to alcohol, despite the fact that they are Christians, they can't. Enjoy that gift anymore. To even have a little bit would be for them to go on a bender. And that's sad and absolutely tragic. But it's a matter of conscience, and it is a gift that we are to receive by God. And not only that, nowhere are we to judge people based upon whether they drink or don't drink. Okay? Colossians chapter 2. I'll start at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit according to human traditions according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head in all the rule and authority in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you who were dead in trespasses and sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, because of this, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or the worshiping of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through uh, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you, still, you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Got it? Scripture's clear. This is a gift given by God, and you have the freedom to either enjoy it or not enjoy it. And I'm not going to judge you if you do or if you don't. That's between you and God. And this idea that, oh, well, true Christians understand that nothing good has ever come from somebody drinking, I would say that's flat out contradicted by God's word. And you are either deceived or are deceiving people when you make an argument like that. If we're going to talk about this subject, we're going to talk about it truthfully and honestly from the full counsel of the word of God and understand what is laid out there. This is a gift given by God and there are restrictions on it. It is possible to sin with this gift, just like it is possible to sin with the gift of sex. You abuse this gift and become enslaved to it, it's absolutely sinful and wretched, and God needs to deliver you from it, and Christ has to die for it in order for you to be forgiven. But that is that to go the opposite and basically say, oh, nothing good ever comes from this, Christians ought not to do this, and see, I'm setting an example for the world by not That is absolutely contrary to what the Scripture says. That is self-made human precepts that have the look of holiness and wisdom but are contrary to the gospel themselves. We need to be very, very careful because the Scripture is extremely clear to not let anyone judge you in regard to things like this, food or drink, a new moon festival or a Sabbath or things like that. There truly is freedom as long as that freedom is it stays within the bounds and the boundaries that God has set. Just like in sex, you are free to make love to your wife, but you are not free to have sex with somebody who is not your spouse. Plain and simple. Same with, with alcohol. You are free in Christ to enjoy it or not enjoy it. That's your freedom. Okay, but you are not free to get drunk. And engage in drunkenness and lewdness and all kinds of craziness that goes along with the abuse of that good gift that God has given us. And that's what the scriptures teach. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side of the break. Gotta listen carefully. It's moralistic liberalism that we're going to be listening to. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
6: Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to
4: Fighting for the Faith,
1: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents "Death of a Salesman." Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some?
7: <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio.
1: The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that will help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices. Write down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website. Very easy to use, very inexpensive. You save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. So again com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Heading back up to Minnesota. Man, this is... This is a moralistic, liberal sermon that you're going to hear from a seeker-driven church. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, moralistic pep talk comes to us via um, Westbridge Community Church, St. Michael, Minnesota. Jeremiah Coran presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled Hospitality. you got to listen really carefully to this one because um, Jeremiah... Does a decent job of at least bringing the biblical texts into his sermon, but he then guts them of their real meaning. And you end up with a talk that, on the one hand, takes a swipe at human traditions and trying to please God through law keeping, but then gives you, as the solution, a new morality. That's the irony of this particular sermon. So, put your thinking caps on, grab your Bible. And let's go ahead and dive into this thing. Let me kill the music here. All right. Without any further ado, here is Jeremiah Koran and his sermon entitled Hospitality. Here we go. And his sermon entitled... And his sermon entitled, Hospitality. Here we go.
4: Well, good morning. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge. And uh, as Jorge said, congratulations for making it here today. Uh, It's pretty brutal out there this morning, but we're glad you're here. Grab your program if you would, and inside you will find uh, an outline. It looks like this. It'll help you follow along with uh, the talk this morning. uh, And also you can take notes if you choose to. Uh, I, um, I also just want to mention that coming up in a few weeks, we have our Christmas Eve services, which will be uh, on Monday, December 24th. <clears throat> Excuse me. at uh, 3 and 4.30. We have two services. And so uh, we're always looking for people. If you've never served on a volunteer team or you want to give it a shot or even if you already serve on a team, uh, we just need kind of a one-time commitment for people to sign up and serve on that day. It's a big day where a lot of people from our community check out the church, many of them for the first time. And and so we just want to make sure that we're ready. Uh, If you're interested in doing that on the back of your connection card, you can just write the words Christmas Eve anywhere on your card. And that'll kind of notify us Uh, to get in touch with you this week and help you find a spot on the team for one of those services that day. Cool. Uh, We're going to jump into the talk this morning. We have been uh, kicked off a series last week simply called A Christmas Story. And we're talking about uh, really this idea of who Jesus is and how he affected our culture. And I want to kick things off today with a little bit of a Christmas quiz, if you will. It's about the wise men. Uh, you see them often in nativity scenes. I saw one the other day I was driving. I saw, uh, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and three wise men and then uh, Mr. and Mrs. Claus right next to them all there. So I thought that was really cool. And, um, and so I wanted to just do a little bit of a, a Christmas quiz, if you will. So these are multiple choice. Uh, and so here's the first question. This is all about the wise men. How many wise men came to Bethlehem to, to see baby Jesus. Was it A, most likely three, B, nobody knows, or C, nobody really knows, but more than you would find on a typical day in Wisconsin? <laughs> Somebody said C. <laughs> Don't be a hater. Uh uh, no, the, it's actually B. Nobody really knows. We assume three because there were three gifts, tradition says, uh, that were brought to the baby Jesus. But in all actuality, if you, uh, the answer is probably B. No one really knows. And it was probably a lot more because wise men tended to travel in caravans uh, so they could carry their supplies and for protection. Uh, here's another one. Number two, were the wise men really present at the manger scene? We see this in nativity sets all the time, right? So is it A, yes. B, no, they showed up late. Or C, no, they showed up late, but if they'd been wise women, they would have been on time. Uh, <laughs> <B>. <laughs> okay, I will grant you that women probably would have arrived on time, but they would have departed late because they were getting ready, and they would have tried to make up for time on the commute by putting on their makeup and steering their camels. What is this idea that you need to
1: start a sermon with an icebreaker rather than with God's word? Strange, huh?
4: ...with their knees. So... Uh, so you know whatever. Uh, the correct answer is B. They they showed up late. Uh, actually, it was uh, uh, within a couple of years after Jesus's birth. Even though oftentimes the nativity scene uh, shows them right there uh, with Jesus in the manger, uh, probably Jesus would have been one and a half to two years old by the time that they had uh, found him. Uh, here's another one. Uh, what gifts did the wise men bring to Jesus? Is it A, uh, gold, incense, and myrrh? B, Whitman's sampler from the Bethlehem Walgreens. Uh, or uh, C, a Tickle Me Caesar doll. Any <laughs> takers on that? Uh, yeah, A, uh, it was gold, uh, incense, and, and myrrh. Uh, here's the last one. What did the three wise men do for a living? A, they were kings. B, they were advisors to kings. Uh, C, since they had a home computer, they worked from home part-time, making 10000 a month, and you can too. See Jeremiah, after the service for a great opportunity. Uh, B, they were probably advisors to kings. They probably, Even though we sing the song, We Three Kings, uh, they probably were not kings themselves. They were actually advisors to kings uh, for the most part. And thus concludes our Christmas quiz. Thank you for participating. Uh, Christmas is a fun time of year, and not only because of the invention of the eggnog latte, which is amazing. Just, I mean, I really feel like we should have a moment of silence to observe. Okay. But also because it's a time of year where we are most intentional about carving out time with family and loved ones. And it's always an adventure to share the holidays with my side of the family and the family that I married into. And quick show of hands, uh, how many of you will spend uh, time with family or extended family this holiday season? Nice and high. Yep. Okay. How many of you throughout the course of the holidays may interact with one or more dysfunctional family members? How many of you cannot raise your hand right now because that family member is in fact sitting next to you right, right now? Okay, just wanted to check. Uh, I read an author this week that said uh, the her definition of a dysfunctional family was any family with more than one person in it. I'm like, yeah, I think that fits. Our families can be sources of great joy or, or great pain. Uh, there will undoubtedly be some great food and laughs and tender moments during the holidays, but there might also be some subjects that Nobody talks about. There might be some uh, tension or some baggage bubbling just below the surface. And, uh, and it's weird because Christmas, this season, can bring out the stress and the tension in all of us. Uh, our world gives us all sorts of advice on how to deal with this. Uh, one I like to call the, uh, the Jerry Springer Christmas. That's where everybody decides, you know, hey, this year we're going to keep it real. You know, we're just going to be totally honest and speak our minds and practice that age-old ritual uh, known as airing of grievances. So this is where you're at the table and somebody makes an offhanded comment like, Mom, could you put any more onions in this casserole? And Mom uh, flies off the handle and goes from zero to 60 in two seconds, and there's steam coming out of her ears, and everybody's around the table chanting, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Uh, Maybe for you, another option would be what I call the Gucci Christmas. This is where uh, you focus on gift-giving and deep-fried turkey and pumpkin pie and activities uh, so that you can avoid dealing with real issues and you can mistake the quantity of uh, wrapping paper and calories and activities for the quality of relationships. Uh, But regardless of what you're heading into, uh, whether it's, you know, a Jerry Springer Christmas or a Gucci Christmas or some of, maybe you're like, we do a Jerry Gucci Christmas, like we rage on each other and then we give gifts. That's how it goes. Uh, But we're all kind of have some level of dysfunction. And this series that we've been looking at uh, that we started last week is really about how did Jesus, uh, how did Jesus change the world? How did this man who lived? How did Jesus change the world?
1: I would start with the cross and him dying on the cross for our sins or something to that effect. Okay. Okay.
4: Uh, you know, 2000 years ago, this guy from this very small town in, uh, in the nation of Israel, um, never traveled more than 75, 80 miles from his hometown. How did he have such an impact? How is it that leaders have come and gone? They, um, Great orators, great leaders, military leaders, uh, people who with all these legacies have come and gone. And yet this legacy of Jesus, this movement that was started by this man who never had any titles, never had any monuments built to him, died the death of a criminal. How is it that this movement of Jesus continues to not only exist but move forward some, you know, over 2,000 years later? And and so what I want to do is I want to look at a story today. It's so somewhat of a lengthy story. Uh, it's got kind of like three movements in it, actually. It's one very awkward dinner party that Jesus uh, attends. And as he's uh, sort of hanging out at this dinner party, um, he reveals some things about what he truly values that I think really have made an impact on our culture today. And we find the story in Luke chapter 14. And the first thing that we see is this right off the bat. Jesus valued dignity over religious tradition. He valued dignity over religious tradition. We we find the story here in Luke fifteen and uh, Luke fourteen, and it starts with this: One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. Pharisees, excuse me, were their religious leaders. Uh, they kind of set the tone for. Uh, their really, their civil law and their, and their religion overlapped. And so if you broke one of the religious laws, you were actually on the hook for some civil laws as well. And their religious leaders were almost their form of government. And so uh, he's eating dinner. It's the home of not just one of the Pharisees, but a leader of the Pharisees. And people are watching him to see what he's going to do. The, there was a man... Uh, There, whose arms and legs were swollen. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, Is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? And when they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. So here's this dinner, and the host is a prominent Pharisee. The Bible tells us that Jesus is being watched very closely. Everybody wants to see what he's going to do. And all of a sudden, and I think we can gather from the story that this guy wasn't invited because Jesus sends him away afterwards. I can't imagine that he was invited, but somehow he made his way into this dinner party. Maybe he kind of crashed the party or whatever. And he shows up. His arms and legs are swollen like he's a member of the Minnesota Timberwolves. And he basically makes his way to Jesus. And here's Jesus. This guy's in front of him. And rather than just respond immediately... He stops to teach a lesson to the the dinner party. And if Jesus is polite, he will pretend not to notice this guy. Jesus is not polite. Not only does he notice him, he calls everyone's attention to him. And Jesus asks everyone, hey, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus already knows the answer to that question. According to their Jewish customs and laws, it would have been unlawful for him to heal on the Sabbath. Because in their efforts to sort of uh, meet God's standard of morality, they had taken a verse that was given a long time ago. Uh, You can find it in Exodus 20 where it says to honor the Sabbath uh, because it's a day that's holy to the Lord. And really all that means is to uh, take a rest. Uh, pull back from your activities, make sure that you don't think that uh, everything depends on you because truly God is the source of everything. And so if you constantly work all the time, you develop this attitude that says, uh, if I don't, then it won't. I have to do everything. Otherwise, it won't get done. Uh, My source of income, my source of living life all depends on me. Now, notice what he's doing here. He's
1: adding stuff to the law. I don't recall that in Exodus 20, we have this commentary that is given um, regarding as the reason why God said to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, at least as it pertains to, well, we don't want you to come up with this attitude that everything's going to depend upon you. I do recall the Sabbath day being, um, well, part of the days of creation. For six days, God created and on the seventh day. He rested, therefore you're going to rest. I do recall those passages, but I don't recall a passage that says what Jeremiah is saying here. He's now engaging in what's called eisegesis. He's sticking something into the text. Now it sounds reasonable. And the reason why it sounds reasonable is because, well, we've all experienced people who work constantly and have the attitude, if, if it wasn't for them, nothing would get done. So it sounds reasonable, but the problem is, is that it's not biblical. It sounds reasonable, but it's not
4: in the biblical text. Already he's starting to steer off the rails here. And because God didn't want us to live life that way, God says take a day, rest, focus, and remember who is the source of everything. And so that's really the nature of where that original law comes from. But in their effort to measure up to God's morality in their effort to sort of climb the ladder and become uh, you know, the most holy person that they could be, they sort of decided to help God out with some additional rules. And so uh, that's kind of the way you're helping God out with additional information as to the
1: reason why God gave the command to keep the Sabbath day holy. Kind of like that. See, the, the, this sermon is chock full of irony. And the reason I say that is because on the one hand, he is taking a swipe at those who are trying to please God by their morals, by their law-keeping, by their rule-keeping. But then on the other, Jeremiah is actually going to give us nothing but morals and rule-keeping. It comes under the guise of principles or enlightened reason and things like that, but ultimately it comes down to the same thing. It's nothing but law It's nothing but rule-keeping. And because he doesn't understand the gospel, he doesn't know how to unpack, well, the gospel stories themselves. Let's continue.
4: Simple uh, command that's given to actually help us, it turns into this very strict regulation in the New Testament. And it becomes this thing of... uh, very, very strict adherence to don't work on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, if you, you they counted their steps. You couldn't walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. If you were to spit on the ground, that would be considered breaking the Sabbath because that could actually fertilize something and cultivate a plant and you'd be considered a farmer. Uh, it was very, very strict. And so here's Jesus. He already knows the answer to this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's within my power to heal someone. But because it's the Sabbath, I would be breaking the law. And so he he really poses this question. And it's one thing to have a theoretical discussion about spirituality and about the Sabbath when no one's there. But here's Jesus with a real-life flesh-and-blood person with swollen arms and legs in front of him. And he asks this question, everyone, should, should I heal this guy? Or because it's the Sabbath, should I just send him on his way? And here's a group of people who claim to know God and love God, but they don't actually care about this person who's created in God's image. And he it kind of ticks Jesus off. And so Jesus heals him. He sends him on his way. And now this is really awkward. He's just broken the, this law of the Sabbath in front of everyone. And if Jesus has, you know, smooth social radar, he'll quickly change the subject. Jesus does not have smooth social radar. He turned to them and said, next verse, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? And again, they could not answer. I love that Jesus equates the worth of a son and a cow. I think that's kind of funny. If your son or your cow falls into a ditch. Uh, this is, again, they can't answer this question. He's like, look, if your own son or if, or if one of your livestock fell into a ditch and it was the Sabbath, would you leave them there till the next day so that you didn't break this law? He says, of course not. You would go and help them. But again, they, they refuse to answer. It's not a comfortable silence. It's an edgy silence because essentially what Jesus is doing as he's establishing the worth of every human soul. Uh, what?
1: Um okay, um that's kind of missing the whole point here. Luke chapter 14. One sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. There's the setup, okay? Pharisees, those who have added to the law of God and think that they're standing before God is as a result of their keeping of the law. I would cross-reference this with, uh, you know, like Philippians uh, chapter 3, for instance. So in fact, let's take a look at this, throw in a little bit of a cross-reference here, because we know uh, what what uh, Pharisees thought about their law-keeping from the Apostle Paul, who, when he was Saul, um, was a Pharisee, okay, and here's what he says regarding self-righteousness. This is we know their sin because Paul was one of them, right? Here's what Paul says. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, okay now, I want to point something out here, and that is um, the Greek word here for uh, for blameless okay commentators who understand the Greek far better than I do. Point this out, that over and again you'll see this term when it comes to law-keeping under the Mosaic system, when you see the word blameless, oftentimes um, that's referring to blameless before other human beings. In other words, you know, another human being wouldn't be able to point to you and say, oh, you're a lawbreaker, okay? That's not claiming that you're blameless before God. That's kind of a technical, uh, theological, precise thing going on there, and the commentators point this out. But as to righteousness under the law, blameless. None of you or, not you or me or anyone else could have been able to say he sinned. God would have been able to say that. But blameless under the law because he's, you know, he's giving his sin offerings, he's keeping all the commandments. He's a Pharisee, Right? Okay. Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my own. For his, uh, my Lord, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all of His good works as scubula. Yeah. In order that I might gain Christ. That's well. It's you know dog droppings. Think think of it that way. Scubula is like that. Uh, So in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you need to know a little bit of something about what's going on with the Pharisees. And these are people who truly believe that they have a right standing before God because of their own righteousness. Okay? And Jesus here exposes them for what they are, hypocrites, right? Absolute hypocrites. So one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, not just any old Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Why were they watching Jesus carefully? The reason they were watching Jesus carefully is because they wanted to discredit him. They wanted to prove that he wasn't the Messiah. They wanted to show that he was unrighteousness, unrighteous. They had it out for Jesus. And see, that's the irony, right? The Pharisees claim to worship the same God that Jesus is. And they don't. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. They don't understand that the purpose of the law is to show them their sin and show them their need for a savior, that all of the sacrifices in the Mosaic law are shadows and that Jesus is the reality. Okay. So they have it out for Jesus. He's the God in reality that they claim to worship, but they don't really worship him in reality, do they? Okay. So behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. He has swollen limbs. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful or not? Remember, the commandment is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Your Sabbath is about resting. So here Jesus is asking these experts in the laws, these Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? There isn't a single passage that they can point to and say, Ah, no, you can't. God has revealed that you cannot heal on the Sabbath. And you know what they did? They didn't answer Jesus. Here's what it says. Jesus asked them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? These are experts on the law. And they Don't respond. But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. What's Jesus doing here? Exposing them for what they are. They think they're righteous, and they're not. They think they have a right standing before God, and they don't. And Jesus here strips away in their own presence, at their own party, their self-righteousness and shows it for what it is. Fig leaves, a farce. It ain't real, okay? Jesus here upbraided them, and they couldn't even say a negative thing about him, could they? Because, well, there was the lawgiver himself in their very presence as a guest at their party, healing on the Sabbath, okay? Now watch what Jeremiah is doing here. He's trying to, to make a distinction between these Pharisees who are trying to be you know, you know, be moral people based upon a strict keeping of the law. But what he's going to do is give us nothing but law. And here's what he's doing. He's missing the whole point of the text. He's not doing a careful reading or paying attention to the details or letting Scripture interpret Scripture so we know what's going on. So now... We've got to somehow moralize this. So Jeremiah is now going to moralize the story by talking about how Jesus establishes the self-worth of everybody. But this passage isn't about that at all. We continue.
4: Last week we, we said it's it's something that we take for granted as mem- you know citizens of the United States because uh A few hundred years ago, a guy named Thomas Jefferson penned these words. He said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Thomas Jefferson writes a few hundred years ago in our culture that uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, this should be obvious that all men are created equal, that they've all been given certain rights by their creator. And yet, in Jesus' world and in the ancient world, this was not self evident. In fact, Aristotle wrote that inequality, subjugation, masters and slaves hey, that was just the natural order of things. Aristotle writes this for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient.
1: Where in this passage in Luke 14 is slaves and masters
4: and subjugation or Aristotle mentioned? From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjugation and others for rule. And so what happened? What happened between the time that Aristotle lived on the earth and wrote these words and penned these words, and and basically this was the norm in society, to a guy named Thomas Jefferson who writes that it's obvious and self-evident that all men are created equal and given the same rights by their creator. What made the difference? It was a man named Jesus. God sent his son Jesus into the world. And while everyone is doing their best,
1: uh, Thomas Jefferson um, only liked the morals of Jesus and didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus.
4: What are you talking about? To, to somehow reach God's standard of holiness and morality through the observation of keeping the Sabbath and these ritual laws. Jesus is busy defining the dignity and the worth of every human soul. He's showing what he values and what people are worth. And see, we, we get obsessed with worth. It shows up in real estate all the time. Economics 101 tells us that uh, the worth of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. Right? For example, how much is your house worth? Let me give you a hint. A lot less than it was five years ago. That's the culture we live in. If you want to find out how much uh, your car is worth, you go to the Blue Book. You can, you can look up its worth. You can look at comparables on your house, find out what it's worth, right? And the blue book is called the blue book because when you find out what your car is worth, you feel blue. So you have the blue book. And Jesus, Jesus is like the, he's like the, you know, blue book for the worth and the value of the human soul. He's already determined how much it's worth. He actually talks a lot about this throughout his life and teachings. He asks the dinner guests, if you had a son or a cow that fell into a pit, wouldn't you disregard these religious rules to help them? He says, look, that's the problem with religion. The problem with religion is it's based on these rules and these regulations to try to keep ourselves in right standing with God. Okay, now listen carefully.
1: That quote problem with religion is it's all based on rules and regulations in order for us to keep a right standing with god and yet the irony is as this sermon unfolds he's only going to give us rules regulations and principles for us to follow yeah i know it's weird keep listening
4: you know as long as we sort of keep the rules and we don't step out of bounds with these man-made traditions of what we think God wants, then we're good, even if it hurts people in the process. It's okay as long as we're keeping this tradition. And Jesus comes along and he shatters that whole idea. He says, look, religious tradition is not more important than the dignity and the worth of
1: every human being. He didn't say that in this passage, nor is it even implied in the text.
4: The true measure of your love for God is attaching the appropriate worth and dignity to every human being. It isn't about how well you can. Okay, now, that's the irony.
1: Hang on. I've got to back the audio up because you've got to hear what he just said. And you've got to hear it in context. And you've got to get what this is. Watch what he does. He takes a swipe at religious regulations and then he slips in
4: a religious regulation. I backed it up a little bit. Listen again in context. Religious tradition is not more important than the dignity and the worth of every human being. The true measure of your love for God is attaching the appropriate worth and dignity to every human being. It isn't a. Huh. So
1: you have, to, in other words, you have to attach the appropriate worth to every human being. Isn't that a rule? Isn't that a regulation? And if my right standing before God is based upon that, then my right standing before God is based on rules and regulations, Jeremiah. You just said that it's not. And then you gave me a rule or a regulation that I need to attach the appropriate worth to other human beings, and, and that's the indicator of whether or not I have a right standing before God.
4: That's a rule and a regulation. It's about how well you keep uh, religious rules and regulations. It's about how well you love Human beings who have been made in God's image. Mm, And love is the summary of the law.
1: So it's not about whether I keep rules or regulations, but whether or not I love other human beings. Well, that's, according to Jesus, the summary of the entire law. Remember, when Jesus was questioned by the, the experts in the law, what's the greatest commandment law Jesus responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On all of these, hang all of the law and the prophets. Love God and love neighbor is not the gospel. Love God and love neighbor is the very heart and center of the commandments, God's law. So what Jeremiah is doing is kind of a Texas two-step here. He's doing, you know, on the one hand, hey, this is wrong, and then turns around and gives you the same thing that he just said was wrong. He's taking, he's taking a swipe at the law and then
4: giving you law. This isn't the gospel. Another time in scripture he says this, What is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. He says, look, if even a sparrow falls out of a tree, God knows. And so how much more valuable are you? They're only worth a couple of copper pennies. God knows every hair that's on your head. Think about that. That's incredible worth to God. You are of incredible worth to God. When When you love someone, you notice all the details. When parents bring their kids home from the hospital for the first time, they count all their fingers and all their toes, and they notice every detail that's happening. And what Jesus is saying is, not only does God have every one of your your fingers and your toes counted, God is so detailed. He's so into you. He is so crazy about you that he actually knows every single hair that's on your head. And I know that, you know, Jorge is kind of challenging God in that department, trying to grow it longer and longer. Just trying to like, oh God, count these, you know? But fortunately, Andrew, one of our other pastors, is making it easy and balancing that out. So, At our house, we have a saying, uh, I love you, the moliest. That's one of the sayings at our house. It is the in, in our house it is the epitome of you can't love any more than the molliest. and it started uh, when our daughter Kaylee uh, started being able to kind of form words and uh, we had this little little thing that we would do back and forth and we'd say uh, I love you and then uh, the other person would say I love you more and then the, the person who originally said I love you would say well I love you the mostest and once you got to I love you the mostest there was no greater level of love than mostest and uh and so there's all kinds of phrases, but uh, that we say, like, I love you to the moon and back, and we have all these things. But once you said, I love you the mostest, that was it. And um, early on, when she was forming words, she couldn't say that. And so she'd say, I, I love you, or whatever. And then say, I love you too. And then she'd say, I love you the moliest. And that's how it came out. And that actually just became a term of affection in our house. Uh, and that's what we use is I love you. The moliest is like the epitome of love. And what God, what God is expressing here is what Jesus is saying is, look, God loves you the moliest." Okay? It's, it's the ultimate expression. The, the other day we were, uh, I was praying with my son. He's four. And uh, he was kind of doing, uh, at bedtime, was kind of repeating after me. And, and we were in like mid-sentence. He stops me. He's like, Dad. Is God is God like this right now? And I was like, I was, I, that was my reaction too. I was laughing and I said, uh, I said, well, I don't, I don't, I can't really see God. I, I can't imagine He's like that. Um, but uh, he goes, Well, what's He doing? And I was like, Well, uh, I don't know. I said, I, My guess is, if I had to guess, God's probably like this right now. He's probably looking down at you, going, Oh boy. Uh, Oh man, Layton, I love that kid. Oh man, what a! I'm so glad I made him. Man, he he just makes me so happy. And he goes, seriously. I said, yeah. And I said, I, God loves you so much. He he takes so much pleasure and delight, and he made you funny, and and uh, you know you're just you're a one of a kind. He goes, let's get back to the prayer. <laughs> like that. I was, okay. <laughs> But it's true, and, and I want him to know that, and this is the message of Scripture, and this is really what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, God loves you the moliest, okay? God. If that was really what Jesus was saying there,
1: then why didn't Jesus say it there? You, you get my point? How can Jesus have meant to say that unless he said it? Jesus says what he means and means what he says but he didn't say that in this passage
4: so how are you getting that from this passage god is crazy about you he's into you he is he created you and he takes pleasure and he takes delight in you he is he knows every detail about you and he does. yeah i recall that when jesus
1: was baptized and he ascended from the water the voice from heaven said to jesus you are my beloved son in whom i am well pleased god doesn't say that about me um, not, at least not in my sinful state, I have to be clothed with the
4: righteousness of Christ to be made acceptable to God. What are you talking about? He doesn't want you to miss the fact. He doesn't want us this morning to miss the fact that he wants us to view others the same way. That Jesus says that, well, if he didn't want us
1: to miss the fact that he wants us to view other people the same way, that you know God loves them the moliest, why didn't Jesus say that in this passage? Why don't you take us to a passage where Jesus said that so that you can say he didn't want us to miss it? If he didn't want us to miss it, why didn't he say it?
4: All of them would disregard the rules of religion to help their own child or even to help their own animal. So why wouldn't we do anything to help a child of God who was made in God's image? He's saying, this is these people are of immense value to me. And so he values dignity of the human soul over any type of religious tradition. Uh, The second value Jesus brought into the world is this. Jesus valued humility over image management. Uh, Check this out. Same awkward dinner party, same night. Humility over image management? Huh? This evening is just getting started. The host of the evening is thinking, man, I hope whoever speaks next picks a safer topic. You know, Jesus speaks next. He does not pick a safer topic. It continues, When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. He's like kind of calling them out. Uh, What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat, and you will be embarrassed, and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. And then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what is Jesus is doing is he's trying to show them that in God's kingdom, humility is the currency of the day. Humility reigns. It's, it's not- okay, Now notice, Okay. Oh, so humility is the
1: currency. So that's the commandment that I need to obey, right? So that I can be on the ends with God. I just need to obey the humble part
4: not status and position. And in both of these values, he says, I value dignity and I value humility. And in both of these values, essentially what Jesus is saying is, you care far too little about the worth of others and far too much about the worth of yourself. That's what he's saying to his guests. He's saying, you're well
1: in a backhanded way. Yes, that's kind of what he's saying. Let me read the passage, Luke 14, verse seven. So at the same dinner party where Jesus just healed a man with dropsy on the Sabbath, He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor and saying to them. Now, so that's the idea here. So we're at a Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisee's party. Jesus is one of the guests of honor. And, you know, when people are arriving, they are making sure to take other honored seats. Why? Because these guys are all about themselves their righteousness, their standing, their honor, yada, yada. you get what I'm saying? They're all about them. What could be more selfish? And by the way, when you are into law-keeping and having a right standing before God based upon your righteousness, every good work that you think that you're doing, you are doing it for yourself. Why? Because you believe that by being nice to somebody or doing this or doing that, that you are earning brownie points with God. Maybe you're thinking that, oh, if, I am just, if I'm just submissive to my husband in just the right way, then God's going to make sure that when I get to the heavenly kingdom, that I'll have an extra 30 yards added to my mansion's swimming pool if i am if i just control my temper then god is going to bless me with the fifth story on my mansion right see when you're doing things according to the law based on your self righteousness everything you do is for yourself there's no such thing as doing a good work for your neighbor's sake you're you're being nice to your neighbor so that you can get the inns with God, get the stuff from him, earn the wage, that, uh, the reward that you think you ought to earn, that you deserve, that you've worked for. It's all about you. So he told those this parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest somebody more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself, will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A cross reference for this, again, is from the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing. This is written to Christians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant or better than yourselves. By the way, there is a hierarchy In Christianity, here's the hierarchy. Are you ready? You are on the bottom. Everybody else that you see and know, they're above you. Do you have any questions? It's real simple. Count others more significant than yourself. That's the hierarchy in the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian, everybody that you know is above you. You are below everybody. That's the hierarchy. So let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very nature or form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, Uh Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted highly him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's go back to our little dinner party here. Okay, let's get our characters worked out. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. He is God in human flesh. And at this point, He is the incarnate Son of God who's come to earth, found in human form, and He's come to serve. He Himself is equal with God because He is God. And yet He emptied Himself of all of that and was found in the form of a servant and became obedient even to death on a cross. He is the ultimate One who has humbled Himself And God, therefore, has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. This passage right here, this little story right here, this tells us about Jesus. He's the one telling the story, and he's showing them for what they are. Oh, you think you're so high and mighty, right? Little do you know who I am. I'm the God you claim to worship. And I'm here to serve you. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. (laughs) That's right, he he will be, and he has been. The one who humbled himself is Jesus. And God is going to cause every one of us to bend our knees and declare him to be Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The one who humbled himself has been exalted and will be, to the glory of God the
4: Father. See, so that's what's really going on in this passage. We continue. You're way too concerned about what all these other people think of you. And you have very little concern about what you think of others. And how often and how much you think of others. And you've got it reversed. He's saying dignity is more important than measuring up to God's standard somehow through your own behavior. And humility is more important than trying to manage your image. And If that's what he was saying, why didn't he say it? And and trying to, uh, you know, sort of uh, manage how other people see you and what they think of you. Sounds like a first century problem to me. I'm glad he addressed these people. Glad we don't deal with this today. The host is thinking, I hope Jesus doesn't have any more advice. Jesus turns to the host and says, let me give you some more advice. (laughs) <laughs> then he turned to his host, and when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite... I'm going to point something out here. The passage does not say in verse
1: 12 that Jesus decided to give him some advice. He's not offering advice. This isn't advice. He's telling them another
4: parable. This is a solemn warning on the part of Christ. Invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So clearly, in these verses, Jesus says you should not invite your relatives to dinner. That's what I'm getting from that. Some of you are like, I've been looking for this verse my whole life. Unbelievable. Again, Jesus is speaking to motive. He's saying the only reason you invite these people is because you know the invitation will be returned. You know they'll respond. They'll reciprocate. You give something to them, and you know they'll give something back to you. At the end of the day, you've made this invitation, this whole dinner thing about yourself more than you've made it about anyone else and you've elevated the worth of your guests you've only elevated or you've only invited people with status and position and wealth who can invite you back and who can reciprocate and so round and round this cycle goes and you manage your image and you and you uh, basically ascribe worth to all these people with wealth and status cuz what what is this what are you doing above all of those people who are disabled and malformed. And Jesus is saying God loves them. God loves these these people who are uh, on the fringes and the outcasts and the the disabled and those who are misshapen because of disease and sickness. He loves them. They are just as much of value.
1: Okay, i got to stop again. He's missing the punchline of what Jesus said. Luke 14, verse 12. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Okay, notice what he's saying to do here. Do this not Expecting repayment. Everything you do, you do so that you can get something in return. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And the, there's an important word there in the Greek, the dekion, those who are declared righteous, the just. Jesus here is making reference to salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone, by his Christ's work alone. That's what he's, the resurrection of the
4: just, those who are declared righteous. We continue. As you are. Stop trying to manage your image. And the only image you should be worried about managing, Jesus says, or preserving, is the image of God in which you and everyone else has been made. And this is this is the challenge in, in our culture. That's, notice he's just slipped
1: in another rule. The only image you should be worried about is preserving the image of God in which everybody's been made. That's a rule. That's a law. That's a commandment. That's a resur- That's a regulation that's being
4: thrown in here. But Jesus didn't say that. even today, this is the challenge. for us, Jesus says to think more highly of others and to think less of ourselves. This is the whole point of this uh, awkward dinner party that Jesus is participating in. He's saying, look, I value the dignity of everyone, and I value humility. You think far too much of the worth of yourself and far too little of the worth of others. And that is the challenge, particularly as we head into this Christmas season. As you head into this time of year, it can become so easy, and it's so subtle for those to be flipped, and Jesus came into the world, and he established this is the value. This is the way the kingdom of God works. Here's the third value Jesus brought into the world, and it's so huge. It's so important. Jesus valued hospitality over convenience. Host- what? What? hospitality over convenience. By this time at the dinner party, it's become very awkward. Okay, Jesus is calling out everybody right and left. He's broken the law. He sends this guy in his way. He calls out his... No, he hasn't broken the law, not God's law.
1: If he'd broken God's law, he'd be guilty of a sin. And then he's not our savior.
4: So he calls out all the guests. He's pointing out all their wrongs. And uh, here's what happens next. <laughs> Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. You gotta love this guy. This is the guy who, in the midst of the awkward silence, is like, How about them Vikings? You know? He just wants to, he's just like, Fill the silence, please. This is horrible. So he says some kind of thing. And of course, Jesus replies with this story A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And so Jesus is telling them this story. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. Okay, I'm gonna stop him right here.
1: Okay. The reason I'm going to stop him is because we need to know what this parable's about first before we let him go on, okay? Let's read it, okay? Luke chapter 14, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, now watch this. A man once had a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and go and... And and I need to go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Yeah, the punchline there is not hard to miss. Who's the one making the invitation, inviting everybody to come? Jesus Who are the ones making excuses not to come to the banquet? The Pharisees. So what's Jesus going to do? He's going to throw the banquet wide open for everyone, and they will not, the Pharisees, taste of his banquet. He here is pronouncing judgment on them. Now what we'll do is we'll we'll take a look at that principle that I refer to from time to time, um, regarding um, what's called scripture, interpret scripture. This parable, by the way, also appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's compare the two. Okay, so we see what's going on. Jesus, this is Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That's I mean, yes, what he's going to do to Jerusalem, by the way. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding garments? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. For many are called, few are chosen. Can I get it? So you see what's going on here? This is a parable of judgment. Christ is pronouncing a very backhanded judgment against the Pharisees. Remember, this portion begins with one of the Pharisees who was reclining with Jesus saying, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. The punchline in verse 24, after Jesus tells this parable, is that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet Jesus is saying to these Pharisees you ain't gonna be there yeah blessed is everyone who does eat bread in the kingdom of God you've been invited but you ain't gonna come I've invited you but you're too busy doing other things you won't even be there that's what Jesus is saying here that's the point that he's making with all of that in mind let's take a listen to what Jeremiah now is doing with this
4: text one said oh i just bought a field and I must inspect it please excuse me Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen, and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I now have a wife, so I can't come. (laughs) I I don't know what that says about this guy's wife, but I know every dude at some point has been there. So, you know, hey, dude, you want to? Yeah, let me. Dude, I can't go. Uh, (laughs) the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. I love that phrase. There's still room for more. After they've gone out and they've invited uh, the people that would never get invited to any type of banquet in their society, he says, we've invited all these people, but there's still room for more. And so his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. Urge them to come. Another version says, compel them to come. Now, what does that mean? Like force them? Actually, if you've heard of like the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition, they would use this verse and they would use this word to compel or to urge. And they they, uh, misinterpreted that to mean force people to convert to Christianity at the edge of the sword. Compel them. And really what Jesus is saying is, look, the reason you need to urge them and the reason that you need to compel them is because these are people who would not normally be invited and would not normally be welcomed. What? Oh, man. Have
1: you been to seminary, Jeremiah?
4: It would be like a very cruel joke. It's, it would be like the 1980s movie where the, the nerdy guy uh, it goes out on a date with the, uh, with the most popular girl in school only to find out that it was a trick. And so he's very disbelieving of it, right, or, or whatever. This is like you have to urge them, you have to compel them because once you invite them, they're not going to think they're welcome. They're going to think it's a joke or a hoax. And so he says, compel them, urge them to come because we want the house to be full, and I think what Jesus is speaking to is this idea of hospitality. That he values hospitality. What? You think that he's talking about
1: hospitality? Yeah, no. You're wrong. That's not what he's talking about. This is not about hospitality.
4: Oh, my Hospitality over convenience, that he wants the house to be full and he wants it to be a place where uh, people who are on the fringes, where people who are the outcasts, people who wouldn't maybe necessarily uh, be welcomed, feel welcome and where we compel them to come. And I think oftentimes this idea of hospitality in our culture gets uh, miscategorized and misunderstood and we tend to think of it it's sort of in two ways we think of it uh we refer to the hospitality industry which is essentially uh cruise ships and hotels or we think of uh you know hospitality on a personal level as being having some friends over to watch the game or having some friends over to entertain them or play cards or whatever it is that you do and we think of those two things as hospitality. But if you dig a little bit deeper, if you look at what true hospitality actually entails, it comes from two Greek words. And I, I, we try to keep it simple here, but you know, not try to like, pull up Greek very often. But the fact is, uh, there's some incredible meaning in these words. It comes from the words philo, which means love, and xenia, which means stranger. As a matter of fact, the word xenophobia is the fear of strangers, but the word philoxenia, which if you translate it to English is hospitality, actually means the... Which, by the way, this word
1: does not appear in this text. Nowhere in this text in Luke chapter 14 will you find the Greek word philoxenia. That's nice that you can talk about a Greek word like that. But usually when people make reference to the Greek and when they're reading from the New Testament, they're referring to the Greek that underlies the English texts that they're preaching from. But nowhere in Luke 14 does the word phylosenia
4: appear. Love of strangers. To be even more specific, it means to create a place of safety for strangers. In Greek mythology, uh, this was used often. Uh, If you've ever read um, the Iliad, if you've read uh, the Odyssey, oftentimes there are uh, warriors who travel they 're on there these sojourners who travel on these journeys and they 'll stop uh, when uh, in their journey as it 's getting dark and the end of the day is approaching and the people who uh, whose door they knock on will welcome them and they 'll take them in and they 'll feed them and they 'll give them a place to sleep for the night and ask them what they need for their journey and The idea being that in Greek mythology you never knew when you answered your door if the person who came to the door and asked for help or asked for a place to stay or asked for a meal was a good God in disguise. And so uh, in Greek mythology, this idea of hospitality, these Greek words, actually came to mean a place of safety for a stranger because of the fact that you never knew. In Greek mythology now, now we're making
1: an appeal to Greek mythology. This text has nothing to do with Greek mythology, nor is this text about hospitality. This is about the fact that these Pharisees claim to worship God, yet the God they claim to worship is there dining with them himself. That's what's really going on, and he's pronounced a judgment on them that they will never taste of his banquet. That seems kind of counter to hospitality, right? And it's weird that you're making a reference here to Greek mythology about, you know, hosting a god by you know by accident or not knowing that you're doing it that's exactly what these jews were doing that's what the pharisees were doing in this text they were playing host to none other than god himself
4: uh if it was a god in disguise and you were actually welcoming one of the gods into your home and you would never want to shun one of the gods are you completely oblivious to who jesus is and what was going on in this text you seem to miss that point And actually, this idea, this sentiment is kind of echoed in the scriptures. In the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about uh, showing kindness whenever you have the opportunity to strangers because many, without even being aware of it, have entertained angels unaware. Right, and these Pharisees were entertaining none other than God himself, unaware. And he pronounced a judgment on them. And says that, so now, uh, out of our... uh, out of our Christian love for each other, we should practice the same thing. We should go out of our way to practice hospitality, which is more than just, hey, come over to my house and Oh man. Serious.
1: For somebody who was knocking, you know, religious requirements, he's given us more requirements. Now we gotta be hospitable. We have we gotta care more about being humble than our self image and and whatever the other one was. He's given us nothing but law morals and moralism and hasn't given us Christ
4: at all, then let's share a pizza. It is actually creating a place of safety for strangers. It's where we get the word hospital. It's, it's creating a place of safety for our strangers. And it's, it's in biblical sort of way of looking at it, it's a way of saying, uh, you know, not that we may be entertaining one of the gods, but in the Christian way of viewing things it's saying we're actually entertaining someone Who bears within them the image of God. That we actually are creating a place of safety for a stranger. And even though we don't know them, they actually bear within them the mark of their creator. They have been created by God. This isn't
1: about creating a safety, a place of safety for strangers. That's not what this parable is about
4: at all. Talk about missing the point. And they are of immense value and worth to their creator. And so we create a place of safety for strangers. And the church of Jesus Christ should always do that and should always be a place of hospitality, a hospital for the wounded soul, a place of safety for every traveler on the journey of life. It says this in Romans 12, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Always be eager to practice hospitality. But hospitality fights against convenience. It's not always easy and it's not always simple. And sometimes here on Sundays, it's a lot more convenient to talk to people that we already know. And if you've been coming here for a while and you've been connected with a group of people, it's easier to connect with people that you're already connected with than it is to try to make new connections with new people. But the fact is we're called to be a place of hospitality, a place that is a a safe zone for people that we haven't even met, a place of safety. And uh, it's encouraging to see last week we said, hey, we just need a few more hands helping with setup. And in spite of all the snow this morning, we had an incredible setup crew. Uh, And so we had a bunch of people. We set everything up, the whole place, in less than an hour. It was amazing. And, uh, and I love that because here's what it is. It's saying even though it's not convenient, we recognize we're creating a place of safety for strangers. We're creating a place where people can come in, those who are maybe the outcasts, those who feel like, oh, I've never been to church. I don't know if it's going to be comfortable. I'm a little weirded out. I don't know what's going to happen. How Are they going to judge me? How are they going to treat me? Will someone say hi to me? And so we're creating this place from day one. It's been our goal that this would be a place of safety for those who are coming in and exploring for the first time. And it isn't always convenient. It isn't always easy. And we have to sacrifice our preferences and our convenience in order to make that happen. But Jesus was really good to sacrifice our preferences and
1: conveniences to make the church a place of safety. What?
4: What does that mean? Be clear. That he valued hospitality over convenience. Good night. That is not what this text is about at all. If this is your church home we ask you to find a place to serve somewhere because we've been called by Jesus to create a place of safety, a refuge, a hospital for the forgotten and the overlooked, for the dropout, for the drugged out, for the wealthy confused overachiever. I've
1: I've heard these slogans kicked around in some of the mainline liberal denominations. You know, this actually this quote sermon and it's not would be quite welcome in a liberal ELCA congregation
4: delivered by a practicing homosexual. For the angry young man who doesn't even know why he's angry, for the marriage that's hanging on by a thread, for the marriage that's already been uh, through divorce, for the people that have been divorced again and again, for those who uh, are addicted, for those who uh, have strained relationship with their kids, for those who can't forgive for those who bear within them hurts and scars and uh, who who can't seem to move past whatever it is that has them weighed down, for those who carry burdens so heavy that every day they fight depression, for those who fight loneliness. We are called to be a place, Jesus says, that practices hospitality, not just hey, let us entertain you. And-
1: this isn't about your church being a place of hospitality.
4: What on earth are you doing? Let us be friendly, but... Let us create a place of safety for those who come in. And Jesus has a message for them. Tell them there's room for them at the table. Yeah, there is because he died for them on the cross. There is good news
1: right there. Those who rejected the invitation, Christ has thrown the invitation over to everybody. Right? He's invited scumbags like me. Sinners like you. And he's going to provide us with wedding garments, clothes of righteousness, his own righteousness to wear as a robe at this great wedding feast.
4: There is good news in there, but it's not about hospitality. There's a safe place where they will be welcome. Tell them that they're wanted and that they're valuable and that I want them to be a part of this family that I'm building. And that's what the story of Christmas is honestly
1: all about. I thought the story of Christmas was all about God and human flesh. Born of the Virgin Mary, I thought that's what the story of Christmas is all about.
4: is when Jesus came into the world and he and he introduced these values into our way of living life and so so Jesus, the great values giver,
1: he's the great introducer of values. This is
4: nothing but more morals and law. I want to encourage you with this very practically practically seeking, when you're here on the weekends. Do something very intentionally. When you're walking down the halls, look at the people that you're passing by. Look them in the eye and smile at them. Say hello or good morning or I'm glad that you're here. Find out their names. Pause and find out their names. If you show up early and you're sitting in your seats and, and uh, you know the service starts in five minutes and there's somebody sitting a few uh, rows down or a couple seats over, find out their names. Say hello to them. Let's continue to make Westbridge a place that is truly a place of hospitality, that is truly a safe place for the strangers who walk in. A place uh, where uh, we can continue to help strangers become sons and daughters and be adopted into God's family. Yeah, that would require you to preach Christ and Him crucified for our
1: sins. Do you do that? Uh, So... We're going to close today, but we're going to do something a little different. Okay, I'm going to stop right there because what he's going to do a little different He's he's not going to pray. He's going to give them a preview for next week's sermon by way of an introductory news video. We're not going to play that because we're not going to be reviewing next week's sermons by Jeremiah, uh, at least next week's sermon by Jeremiah Coran. So there it is. Um, Apparently that parable about the wedding feast, (laughs) it's all about you making your church a, place of hospitality for strangers and the down and out and the depressed and things like that because that was the Jesus was the great introducer of of values that's why he came to earth to introduce values to us the value of hospitality over inconvenience or the the value of being humble as opposed to looking at for your self-image and and stuff like that and when you read the bible this way you literally empty it of all of its meaning all of it because you've emptied it of Christ and what he's done for us. And when you do that, well, there's no point in reading the story. It might as well be like Aesop's fable. You can, you can get these values. Well, from the story, of the tortoise and the hare, or, you know, name the different Aesop's fables. You can get all of these values from there. You don't need to get them from a crucified and risen savior. See, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins and call sinners like you and me to repentance so that we can be invited to the great wedding feast and know that we can be there because he gives us his robes of righteousness to cover our sin so that we can enjoy the finest wines, the finest foods prepared by God himself on that day when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Looking forward to that day, not because I deserve to be there, but because Christ has declared me righteous in Him and made me worthy to sit at the great banquet, great wedding feast of the Lamb of God, because He's taken away the sins of the world, mine and yours included. Amen. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.